How you doing today, Brian? Hey, I'm doing really well, Nick, and uh, had a, a great conversation today with Shelly Archambault, who is, uh, among many things, the author of a new book called Unapologetically Ambitious. Yeah, and it was a great conversation today. You know, we went all the way from her journey of being uh, a small child in California to all the way being, you know, a CEO of major corporations, um, being at IBM, you know, working in in another country. Uh, it was a very diverse and, and interesting conversation today, and I, I really enjoyed it. I did too. And I've, I've really been enjoying reading her book. I, you know, it's one of those that uh, I've found to be a very easy read. She writes Mm -hmm. in a very natural style. And one of the things that we talk about with her is uh, she's just so completely authentic. She uh, doesn't hold back in being vulnerable with her own experiences. And um, I think that just helps make some of the insights that she shares from her own role as a leader uh, Mm -hmm. in her career path. Uh, even more impactful. And um, I, I highly recommend this book. And um, it's it's exciting to see that she's already having uh, some pretty substantial success with it, uh, with some of the, uh, uh, the recent um, accolades that she's received from things like Bloomberg, uh, calling it one of the, the 50 best uh, leadership books of 2020. Yeah. And I think she's probably just very soon, I think we'll be talking about she's on that New York Times list. Um, with with accolades like that, it's it's just a matter of time before that happens. I think in that nonfiction section, she'll she'll be there. I imagine. So it it makes it especially uh, a great honor that we uh, were able to have her on the show today. So I know she's got a very busy schedule, and uh, now with the book out there being as successful as it is, I can't imagine things are going to slow down anytime soon for her. <laughs> yeah, no, and I guess with that, let's just let the uh, listeners get on with the show. Great. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Nick Lozano in Washington, D.C. And we're pleased today to be joined by Shelly Archambault, who is our special guest. We're going to be chatting with her a little bit about her new book, Unapologetically Ambitious, as well as uh, some of the many other stories that she has to share. Shelly, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I appreciate your inviting me. Well, we're delighted to have you. And uh, as I've been uh, trying to page through your book here, I've been fascinated uh, not only by the amount of wisdom that you've been able to uh, pack into uh, this tome of yours, um, but also the uh, the qualities of your own personal journey. I mean, you've uh, you, you've opened up yourself, uh, you know, pretty well from uh, an autobiographical perspective. So maybe we can start there and you can just give us a little bit of a background about, uh, you know, what's, what's your executive summary version of the many experiences that make you up? <laughs> <laughs> my executive summary is, oh my goodness, I was uh, um, a little girl born the eldest of four um, that started out life happy and confident and ready to go, had most of that literally almost beaten out of me, and then spent the next several decades working to build it back. And along the way, learning that the odds weren't in my favor, I made me a very intentional person because I was always trying to figure out how to improve my odds. And that was to get whatever I wanted professionally and or personally. So whether that was going to Wharton and becoming an executive at IBM, to becoming a CEO of MetricStream, to running operations in the U.S., running operations overseas, uh, to sitting on some of the largest boards in the country, or whether it was to be married, have two children, raise them to be independent, self-sufficient, and confident, um, those were the goals that I set for myself. And fortunately, I was able to achieve them. But, but... It took a lot more than just being ambitious and hard work. And the reason I wrote the book was to be able to share with people that it takes more than that. You have to be strategic. You need to be intentional. And that there is actually a lot of help and support out there for you if you know how to reach out for it. That's great. Is that a good summary? (laughs) Gold star. (laughs) 
Well, you know, again, um, you, you pack a lot of wisdom into a very condensed space. So uh, it, it's it's clear that this isn't your first pass at uh, needing to do this. Um, really, I think going through uh, some of your book, just seeing the quality of the organization of your thought uh, is uh, it's it's also very inspirational to me. You know, I, I love books on leadership. I love uh, books about uh, personal experiences. And um, like most of the people that I've come across in my life who are strong and successful, there's a lot of adversity uh, that seems to be in the path uh, early on. And your story is no different. Very true. Very true. You know, I um, talked about being, you know, young and starting out strong and confident and then having the challenges well, when I went to elementary school, I was in first grade when my family moved from Philadelphia, which was very diverse. I, I honestly didn't even realize that the whole world wasn't like Philadelphia. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm in first grade uh, to California, a suburb of California called Granada Hills, where I was the only black girl in the class. Matter of fact, in the grade and maybe even the school. Um, oh, wow. It was that, that homogeneous. Um, and unfortunately, it was the 1960s when for as many people that wanted civil rights, you had just as many that absolutely did not. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of them took it out on this little six-year-old, seven-year-old girl um, in Granada Hills. So that's how I learned early that the odds weren't in my favor. And so the adversity was definitely, definitely real. Fortunately, I had a strong parents. And I had a couple of teachers along the way that really made a difference and an impact so that I was able to indeed work my way through it. But, um, but you know how you, when you're a little and something happens to you and you come home and you say, it's not fair, right? I mean, things happen all the time, right? You can yeah. picture yourself. You can picture your own kids saying, it's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair. Well, you know, every time I came home and somebody did something to me or I didn't get something I deserved or felt I deserved or whatever, and I'd say, mom, it's not fair. My mother would literally just look at me and say, well, life's not fair. What? It's supposed <laughs> to be fair, right? But no, no. So, you know, that whole concept of life is not fair, I've, I've believed from the very beginning because it was just kind of drummed into me. So therefore, <clears throat> what are you going to do about it? And mm -hmm. all of that became the whole focus on, hmm, I've got to figure out how to improve my odds. Right. So mm -hmm. that's really what what that all that adversity created. I like well, that whole life's not fair thing. Right. I, f I feel like the so I'm a millennial. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm not. We're, we're called the trophy generation or the like we need everything. But I actually enjoy losing in sports. Right. Because it's like a humbling experience and teaches you that that everything's not going to be handed to you. And sometimes you're going to lose. And knowing how to lose gracefully and get back up and start again is what it's all about, right? Because we don't win every single time we step up to the plate or, or whatever we do. Um, so it sounds like you you had a, you know some great mentors and your parents there to kind of start you along on that journey. Absolutely did. It was very fortunate. I, you know that it's funny that you mentioned that, Nick, because I was I was going to make the comment that uh, you know based on what I've learned about Shelley so far. You, I can't imagine that you'd ever settle for a participation ribbon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I was there. <laughs> I got a ribbon because I was there. Yeah, no. <laughs> I agree with you on that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's part of the funny thing about, you know, what society has sort of, how would you characterize it? Have we devolved into that? Have we devolved to the participation ribbon? Uh, because, uh, you know, it's that adversity, I think, that helps give you your edge, right? It's that, it's that friction uh, along your path uh, that, that sharpens you, right? No, no yeah, different than a, than a cutting knife, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's, uh, it's really about resilience. You know, it's about resilience. You fall down, you know you're going to get up, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but if you fall down and every time you fall down, somebody picks you up, you know, when you fall down, you're just going to wait until somebody comes to pick you up again. Um, so I think so much of the, the adversity or challenge, you know, losing, whatever it might be, is really about building resilience. And that in itself is so critical 
in life because people don't tell you and many parents don't tell you. Life is hard. <laughs> life is hard. Okay, full stop. It's hard. And nobody really talks about it. You know, most people, you go in and you hear them speak or something, people who are successful and they'll tell their story. They took step one, step two, had a little hurdle over three and four, boom, right? And so you think, okay, right? But then when it becomes hard for you, you sit there and say, well, gosh, it's so easy for everybody else. That if it's hard for me, I'm obviously not cut out for this, right? This is not for me. I need to quit. I need to stop. And I'm like, no, it is hard for everybody. So don't stop because it gets hard. Just get more help. <laughs> Amen to that. That's uh, And that, I think, feeds right into the title, right? I mean, what an unapologetic attitude. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So speaking of the title of the book, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, with someone whose schedule has been as jam-packed uh, with board memberships, with uh, your foundation work, with, uh, you know, all of uh, the corporate involvement that you've had in your career path, what was the rationale that now is the time to sit down and put pen to paper and, and actually write a book? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, Brian, because I'm very goal oriented. So I set goals for myself and then I put plans in place and I go execute. And frankly, being an author was never one of those goals. So the reason I decided to actually write is I've tried throughout my career, frankly, to be accessible, you know, to be available. People reach out, you know, I respond. Mm -hmm. But what's happening is as I've got more and more responsibility, I didn't have time to meet with everyone. I could still respond mm -hmm. to emails, to notes, right? Voicemail, et cetera. But I couldn't meet with everyone that wanted to meet with me and pick my brain, hear my story, right? Learn my strategy, all those things. And frankly, it pained me. It, it really did pain me to say no. I've, I try so hard to be able to say yes or figure out a, a way to say yes. And so I said, all right, when I get to phase two, I'm just gonna write it down. I'm gonna write it down so that I can just share with people Here's, here's what worked. Because frankly, I want more people to be able to achieve their aspirations. It just, it's, it's mind boggling how many people don't even get the opportunity to contribute to like half their capabilities. And it's not because they're not yeah. capable, they're not smart, they're not ambitious. Not, they just don't understand that it takes more than that. It takes more than just working hard, putting your head down and you know pressing forward. And that's what I'm trying to share in the book. One of the chapters that uh, that I thought uh, really tied into what you just said there, uh, one that I that I found um, particularly inspirational, uh, and maybe it's because I've spent some time working in Japan as well. But uh, uh, you've got a chapter called called "Your Challenges Are Your Strengths," and in it you tell a story about really getting this international assignment uh, to go and do a presentation. Uh, in, in front of an audience of uh, Japanese uh, business colleagues. And, uh, and, and the story, uh, you know, takes a couple of uh, twists and turns along the way, kind of starting with how the expectations were set for you that you're probably not going to do this well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a heck of a send-off speech I got. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what's in that chapter, Shelley? Because uh, I think it's just a great story. And I, I think, you know, it's it's such a sort of condensed um, anecdote that I think is representative of kind of everything that's going on in the book. Oh, thanks. Well, sure. So, yes, I finally, I'm getting the opportunity to go overseas, uh, run a big division over there. I'll be the first Black female to go on an overseas assignment like this for IBM. And my boss that I was leaving, right, for the new job. He'd worked in Asia. He was actually uh, Australian. And he says to me, okay, so Shelly, what do you know about being successful in Japan? And I'm like, well, <laughs> nothing, right? I mean, so, um, and he said, well, listen, there's three things that are important to be successful in business. I said, okay, great. I'm listening, right? Notepad ready. Got a nerd. Number one is wisdom. Well, I'm like in my mid thirties at the time. Wisdom is age. Shelly, you don't have wisdom. Turns out in Japan, and Brian, you know this, you know, many times you don't even become a first line manager until you're in your 30s. Uh, <laughs> right. So to be an executive, it's like, okay, sorry, right, fine. Don't have wisdom. All right. 
I'm ready. Number two. Number two, being male. No. Right? So, okay. I am zero for two. And I'm thinking, oh my God, right? What am I getting myself into? And he's like, Shelly, the third one is intelligence. And you better figure out how to maximize it. <laughs> and I'm like, what? That is, that's my go off and be successful speech. But anyway, but as it turned out, um, he was right. Definitely male dominated, right? Absolutely. My oh, yeah. The gentleman who reported to me in Japan for my Japanese part of my business, I had Asia Pacific responsibility for the Japanese business. He was probably 55. All right. So old enough to be my dad. Um, and, uh, and I'm over there and I'm getting ready for like my first meeting with him. Uh, and in Japan, you have the meetings before the meetings, <laughs> which means in the U.S., you have a meeting so you can get things decided, et cetera. No, no. In Japan, a meeting is just to confirm everything mm -hmm. that's already been decided. So it's very mm -hmm. different. So, all right, so I'm gonna have my first meeting. Well, I have to meet with this number two person like two or three times to make sure that the agenda's set, everybody's clear, here's what we're doing, right? It's gotta go well. And he says to me, right before the very first meeting, right, we've had all these multiple meetings, it's the night, it's the day before. He goes, Shelly, tomorrow you're meeting with Yamamoto-san, blah, 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 I said, yes, yes. And he says, Shelly, and here's the key, for him, if this meeting didn't go well, it was all on him because it was his job to make sure this went well. So he's almost pleading, you know, he's like, shelly son, this meeting is a nice meeting. It is a, a get to know you meeting, like a, like a first date, because his English is a little broken, right? And sure. I said, got yeah. it, yeah. got it, Harasan, got it. Well, I'm walking to work the next day and I pass the floor shop. First date. <laughs> I bought the biggest bouquet of flowers that they had, put them in the cupboard, and when Yamamoto-san came, we said, hello, how are you? We did our bows. And I said, Ahara-san, you know, we met. He told me it's a nice meeting, like a first date. Yamamoto-san's, he's, you know, bowing. And I said, so I bought you flowers. And I opened up the cabinet and pull out this huge bouquet. And his eyes get big. And I'm thinking, this is going to go really well or really badly, right? <laughs> and then he breaks out into a smile, right? Takes the flowers and it broke the ice. It was all good. Um, the good news for me on that particular story is that he had to carry those flowers all the way through Asia Pacific, right? All the way up the elevators, down the elevators, up to IBM Japan, up to his office in IBM Japan. across. So by the time he got there, everybody heard Shelly-san because Japanese men don't walk around with great big bouquets of flowers, right? Uh, so anyway, and then, uh, and then the speech. So the speech, here I am, and I'm talking to the whole team at IBM Japan. And senior executives speak English pretty well, but the rank and file, they don't need to use it that much. And I thought, mm -hmm. gosh, if I do this in English, I, you know, they're probably not going to miss, miss most of what I say. So I had my assistant put the, all the slides completely in Japanese because I knew what I was going to say. So I just needed to know what page I needed to turn, right? <laughs> right. Uh, well, it turned out that was the first time for that group that somebody had actually done that, put the whole thing in Japanese. Um, so what I learned from all this, just a few things. This one, being a minority in the US, I learned skills that I didn't even realize I learned skills. Mm -hmm. So going to Japan, I was a minority. Well, I knew that. I've always been a minority. So I do what I always do, which is I try to figure out how to make my team successful. I try to be, I'm a servant leader, right? I know mm -hmm. that my reputation and everything I've done Nobody cares and it's not gonna come with me. I've got to prove myself over and over and over again. So I just do that. Well, when you go into a new environment, a new country, that's actually more welcomed. If you walk in with the assumption that, hey, everything came with you and you're just gonna tell people what to do and all that kind of good stuff, not so much, right? So it was actually turned out to be a skill that I didn't even know that I had. That's brilliant. And, uh, you know, the fact that you kick yourself off with, you know, something so endearing as the gesture of bringing the flowers, uh, you know, <laughs> um, it's just one of those, those things that I, I, I think I might chalk up to serendipity, but it's one of those flashes of insight that come along with being prepared, right? And I, I've heard you speak to intentionality, right? It's important to be intentional. So, uh, so it really is. It really is. Have, have a purpose in mind. You know, what, what are you doing? I think that's where so much of the power comes from because a lot of people, you know, Nick and Brian will, 
they'll make, they'll set goals. Oh, I want to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. And some people will take the time to put a plan in place, but I find that very few people make decisions every day, consistent with their plans. Mm -hmm. And then they wonder why they don't come to pass (laughs) the power The power is in being intentional, making decisions with the intention of what you want to actually have happen. I like that you said that because I always set goals and I equate it to like a map, right? I have where I am standing currently and my goal is where I want to go. If I don't ever look at the map to figure out how to get there, then what's the point of even having that goal? Um, So when you're talking about these goals, what are some some tips or whatever you have about setting them um, and, and kind of going forward and making sure you're, you're accomplishing them. Mm. So pick the goal as far out as you can envision, right? Some people can pick, you know, decade long, right. Goals and some, Mm -hmm. it's only a few years in front of you. Well, that's okay. Whatever you're able to envision, that's fine, but pick a goal. What's the target? Once you have the target and the goal, then I ask myself, what has to be true? What has to be true for this to happen? And this is when it's all about doing the research. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you want to become CEO, right. If you want to have a long-term marriage, if you want to, so this works for personal as well as professional, then ask yourself, well, what has to be true for Mm -hmm. me to do that? And that's what I did when I said, I want to be CEO. I actually did research on the CEOs. Okay, what were the backgrounds, right? What did they do? What were their experiences, et cetera? So I could figure out what I needed to do. And then I said, all right, once I understand what has to be true, how do I make it true? Mm -hmm. And that how do I make it true? That's the plan, right? Mm -hmm. That's the plan. And then I just execute on that. And here's the key. Once I make that plan, I assume it's going to happen. Does it always happen? No. I have a whole section of the book called Swerve, right? It's called Swerve because no, it didn't happen. Um, but but here's the, here is the value of assuming it's going to happen. If I assume it's going to happen, then I make decisions consistent with it happening. Mm-hmm. So then when it happens, I'm lucky because I'm actually prepared. I actually have the skills to take advantage. I actually have the, you know, whatever, the financial wherewithal, right, to invest. I have whatever it happens to be. I now have when it happens, because I've been planning for it and I've been assuming it's going to happen. So in that way, you can actually improve your luck. My parents told me, I'll go back to way back, right? Parents told me, all right, we'll help you with college or we'll help you with wedding. Well, pick college, which means the (laughs) wedding was on me, right? The wedding's on me. Well, I knew I wanted to get married younger if I could versus older. So I started saving for my wedding in college. You know, I worked a ton because I had to pay the rest of my, to be able to go to school. And then I was trying to save money for a wedding. Why was I doing that? I'm killing myself. Why am I doing that? Well, because if I do end up getting married when I'm younger, I want to be able to actually do that and not go into debt. Mm-hmm. Well, I did. I got married four months, three, three, four months after college. And I paid for my wedding. No debt. I got that lucky. That is awesome. I got lucky. <laughs> no, you know, uh, I, I keep two signs on either side of my desk. One of them says, manifest your intentions. Mm-hmm. The other one says, affirmation without action is delusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> and those those kind of bookend, you know, as as my reminders on, on a daily basis, uh, you know, so much of, of what I'm hearing you say right now. And to me, part of being intentional is to spend the time, right? The, the, the personal life strategy homework on really kind of, you know, setting the menu, right? right. What, what, what is my recipe for success and be specific about what you want those things to be and having that clarity versus just saying, well, I want to be rich or, you know, I want to have more time, you know, to do fun things. Being, being as specific as possible so that it's almost like, you know, the mind works in, in funny ways. It's almost like by being as specific as possible, your mind starts operating on these principles that, well, then that's the thing that I need to make happen. Right. Yes, exactly right. And there's so much power. There's so much power in that. 
So when how much? The- um, sorry. So so how much of that when you're initially setting the goal setting is being honest with yourself, right? If I say I want to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but I've never been even a a senior vice president or a director of any large company. I mean, how much of that is just being honest with myself, like saying I'm here and these are where I need to go to get there Mm. and being more realistic. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because part of it, it's all about when you start the planning, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also about understanding. That's why you do the research. What would have Mm -hmm. to happen? And then you ask yourself, okay, so what would the plan be? And if it turns out, you actually can't execute the plan. I only have 10 years left to work. And when I look at the plan, it's a 15 year plan. That's going to be a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So there can be times when, yes, your goals, um, you're not able to do it in the tradition. I say in the traditional way, I'm still a believer of figuring out, is there another way to do it? Now, if you Mm -hmm. just wait too late, like for instance, I thought when I was little, I wanted to be a pilot. All right. So I thought I'm oh, going to be a too. pilot. Uh-huh, <laughs> so, there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, I think for us too. I think a lot of people, right? But yeah. then, you know, I find out you actually have to have good eyesight to be a pilot. Well, at the time, yeah, I'm looking at Brian's glasses. <laughs> the, only reason, the only reason that I don't have on glasses thicker than yours, Brian, is because I got LASIK. <laughs> My eyes were so bad that I couldn't even see the it's an E. I used to tell people the B, the E on the chart, you know, that right. big E, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that big E was not clear for me. All right. That's how bad my eyesight was. So I'm like, well, so much for that goal. So to the point, Nick, I mean, yes, you have to have some realism into whether or not it's, it's possible um, and give yourself enough runway. You're right. You can't wake up and you're 50 years old and you're sitting there as a, I don't know, a director and say, I want to be a CEO of a fortune 500 company. Ugh, it's kind of late. <laughs> right. In terms of to be, because you just don't have enough time to do the things that you need to do. Um, so that's the, that's the piece that you definitely have to weigh in it. But the other thing is, listen, take help. I mean, I took help, ask people what they think. Hey, one day I aspire to be blah, 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 blah. Do you think I have the potential? All right. Ask now you sit there and mm-hmm. say, Oh my God, that's a scary thing to do. Right. That's scary. Cause what happens if they say no? Mm-hmm. Well, here's the key. A no is actually a great response. It's a great response because it gives you the chance to say, why not? Mm-hmm. And in that why not question, you can learn so much about what you're missing, about gaps, maybe even about blind spots, things that you didn't even think were important that apparently are really important. So a no is actually a very good thing. So many people don't ask things because they're afraid to get a no. And I'm like, the worst that can happen is you're right in the same spot you started it. Okay, so <laughs> how is that? How is that even risky? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I personally think, you know, being vulnerable, being willing to be vulnerable, which you mm-hmm. are when you ask a question or when you show that you don't have all the answers yourself, et cetera, is actually an important element to ambition because it's really hard to be ambitious, to take risks, to go after things if you're not actually willing to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a key term, I think, that I would use to define some of what's in unapologetically ambitious. It's vulnerability. And, you know, I see the vulnerability and the chances that you took in telling your own story in as much of, of what those examples are in the story because the book gets very deeply personal in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is, Brian. You know, I've I've read a lot of business books and listen, this is not a knock on, on business books, you know, in general, um, but I didn't want to write a, you know, 10 ways to make it to the C-suite kind of book <laughs> um, because there's so much more nuance. There's so much more nuance than just set plans, right? Than just mm-hmm. execute than just, I mean, you can say those words, but they don't mean a lot. Um, I think it's through story that most of us actually internalize, you know, what we're hearing. And so I was trying to do it through story. And yeah, by the time you put it all together, it ends up being a whole lot of autobiographical stuff about me. Um, But I just thought it would be more powerful to really see and hopefully feel, you know, what what it's like, what it means, the good stuff and the bad stuff. That's the mm-hmm. other thing. 
I was also trying, and trust me, it's hard. You're writing stuff down. You're like, oh my God, I'm telling the world this, right? Um, <laughs> but at the but at the same time, I don't think I would be very real if if I didn't mm-hmm. take out all the bad stuff and just show the good stuff. Well, that what kind of an example is that? Because then people think, oh my God, if anything bad happens or if I have any stumbling block or whatever, then obviously I can't do what Shelley did. And it's completely <laughs> false. So I wanted people to see, hey, no, I'm not perfect, right? No, I made mistakes. Things happened. I mean, anyway, that's that's what I was trying to accomplish. Well, I know that Nick and I are both fans of Brene Brown's work, and uh, she is all about mm-hmm. putting it out there and yes. being vulnerable and, you know, exposing the skeletons in her closet. And it is, that's what makes her story so powerful and so universal is that authenticity, you know, I, I am not a black woman. I, I have not had to live a minority uh, existence except when I have been living and working in other countries. And and yet there's so much universality in all of the things that you share that are directly relatable to me because I am a human being. Mm-hmm. Having uh, emotional experiences, having uh, my own uh, sense of ambition, right? Uh, trying to find my own way navigating along the pathway. So, so all of those things, you know, I think are, you know, critically dependent on your own authenticity in the way that you have been vulnerable in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, this gift, because it is, uh, I think it is uh, exceptional. And one of the things that I was also pleased to see when I got my copy was that the forward uh, is written by Ben Horowitz, who just so happened to write what's my own personal favorite leadership book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, <laughs> which is, you know, he, he gets personal in a completely different kind of way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, obviously uh, your own background with him and your own uh, strength in marketing uh, could be part of what has contributed to your understanding of the power of story. Yes, yes, I, th- I think you're right. I've, I've definitely learned in terms of over time, people will learn and retain um, much better in terms of by, by weaving things into story. Um, what's the one thing that you would point to that you think was a surprise to you as a result of going through the process of writing the book? Oh my goodness. Um, it wasn't until I actually... Um, went back, especially to the younger years, um, because I was trying to really uncover and share what made Shelly Shelly. But I'll be frank, a lot of things that happened to me when I was young, I like tried real hard not to think about those things. And Mm -hmm. so writing the book, I had to go back and not just think about it, Mm -hmm. but in order to, you know, accurately portray it, I had to relive those experiences. And I'll tell you, they are just as hurtful when you're in your 50s as they were when I was seven and eight years old. Um, so the, the emotional tax, you know, the mental emotional tax of that, uh, I had not expected, you know? So there were days when I just, it was literally just thinking back and remembering whatever. And literally on a piece of paper, you have like a few sentences, right? <laughs> but I spent all this time kind of thinking, reliving, trying to put it. It's like, um, so anyway, so that part was a surprise. I guess if I'd thought about it, I could have anticipated it, but it was a surprise. So how much of that, so this is your first book ever. And did, did you ever, and I know this is a chapter in your book because imposter syndrome, did you ever feel that um, before you started writing the book? Like, hey, who am I to read a book, write a book? Uh, you know, I'm not an author. Did you ever get that feeling at all? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's daunting. When you start a book, mm-hmm. there is not even a, a word on it. The first thing you write is title. And by the way, I had no title. So I literally just wrote the word title. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> right. I mean, what's the first word you write? I'm like, okay, title. Um, so it's daunting. Um, and yes, as I was going through it, I did. Because I had actually done, I actually have done one book before, but it wasn't a personal book at all. It was a book on marketing. 
I did. I co-authored it with a couple of professors and it was very different and so much easier. Um, <laughs> but this one, yeah, this one is I was working on it and then you get your drafts, right? And then you have to be vulnerable. I start sharing <laughs> stuff and you get feedback and you're like, oh my God, right? What am I doing? <laughs> is this ever going to come together? Um, it's a lot of work. And yes, you definitely have doubts. Who were some of your biggest advocates uh, along the way? Did you, oh, did you have folks that stepped up to encourage you to keep doing it? Totally, totally. Um, Nancy Duarte um, is, is one. Lisa Stone is another. Um, you know, Jonathan Rosenberg, uh, who was a co-author of A Trillion Dollar Coach, right? Um, I was planning to self-publish because when I initially went out, and talk to some people who had written books because that's what I do. All right, I'm going to write a book. Let me go talk to authors. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, okay, here's what you do. Put together your proposal, your outline, your marketing plan, blah, 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 blah. You package it up and send it out. <coughs> Pardon me. I have allergies. Um, anyway, so you put together all these pieces, right? Your marketing plan, your proposal, your outline, three chapters, all that stuff, and you send it out. And so I did. Nobody was interested. Mm. People were like, no, this is kind of a hybrid memoir, advice, business book. Ah, it doesn't really fit on the shelf. Um, it was, uh, why don't you turn it into 10 steps to be successful? I'm like, that's not what I want to write. <laughs> um, so I said, well, you know what? I was never trying to be a famous author or anything. I'm really just trying to get the message out. So I'm just going to write it and self-publish. And so that's what I did. I wrote it, got an editor, got coaches, did the whole bit. And then as I'm packaging this whole thing up, I had Jonathan Rosenberg read it. And he said, Shelly, this is too good to self-publish. Don't self-publish. I said, listen, I sent my proposal. Nobody was interested. He said, don't self-publish. I said, all right. So I sent it out again to the same people. Then I got a deal. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it, you think, that was a turning point? to take it from this should be a 10 step book to uh, um, unapologetically ambitious is, is gonna be a title that sells. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I think it was the fact that it was just done. All right, so they could actually see how it was coming together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And two, I evolved, right? I evolved my the first three chapters written, you know, versus how it was done. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, I told you I periodically, I'd send it to people to read, get feedback. Um, so I'm tar and I wanted to make sure I was targeting the breadth, but especially people's in their twenties and thirties. That was kind of my sweet spot of who I was really targeting. And so I sent it out to those people. And one of the questions I'd ask is, okay, you're reading as I asked you to read it. Tell me what chapter you get hooked where you want to finish reading the book. And the first feedback I get is chapter 19. <laughs> chapter 19. Oh God, that's not going to work. There's <laughs> only 18 before that. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So it's, but it's that kind of thing. I mean, that's just one example, but, and so here's why writing a good book, I tell people you can write a book, but mm. writing a good book is really hard because mm -hmm. you put it down. I felt it like it was building a table, you know, it's a table platform, four legs, and it will hold something that is technically a table. Nobody's interested in it. Nobody's going to pay any money for it. Right. And they probably won't even use it, but it's a table. Well, writing a book to me was kind of like that. It's like, you write it and it's like, okay, fine. You sand it down then, right? How's this? Nope, gotta put some coat of stain on it. You know what I mean? Okay, let's add some match. I mean, it's, it's coming back and coming back and coming back to try to really strengthen and make it better and make it prettier, make it more interesting, make all those things. So that's what it was like for me, probably because I'm not an author. I'm sure authors don't go through that buildup. They know how to do it better, but that's how I ended up having to do it. Well, I've always heard that the uh, the actual book is in the rewrite. Right? <laughs> well, that was, yep, there you go. So, Shelly, I want to ask you another question really about your career path. Um, you know, obviously, you've got uh, an extensive background in marketing, and you've found yourself positioned in uh, Silicon Valley, where at one point in the book, you describe exactly what you know the silicon valley business type is which was not you right no, <laughs> and, and and yet you've uh continued to find yourself on a path through a lot of companies that are all technical in nature 
and uh, and have continued to find yourself in board memberships uh, for more of the same. So, talk a little bit about you know how how did you how did that come to be the path uh, for you? Mm. Well, you know it's interesting. I picked tech because it was a growing industry. I didn't necessarily pick tech because, oh my God, I love programming and I love coding and I love this and all that. So am I going to tech? It was just, all right, I have to pick some industry and I'm trying to be a really good listener. You know, I feel like advice falls from the sky and most people <laughs> just allow it to fall on the ground. You know, you've got to really be listening to catch all that comes. So sometimes I don't even know where it came from, but I do remember hearing once that you pick an industry that's growing if you're ambitious because industries that are growing have companies that are growing and companies that are growing never have enough resource. So therefore, if you're good, that's a big if, if you're good at what you do, you tend to get more responsibility faster. Mm -hmm. Done. That's why I picked tech. Um, and what it turned out is even though I was not the programmer, uh, although I did take programming courses in college because I knew I wanted to go in tech. So I wanted to at least understand how all this works and how people think. So I did all that for sure. Um, but any business, whether it's in tech, whether it's in energy, whether it doesn't matter what it is, has a variety of skills that are needed to make it successful. And when it comes to leadership, right? Leadership can come from so many different directions. So my, my real focus was on building leadership skills and skills to be able to pull teams together and get things done consistently and develop strategy and execute against strategy. Right. So those were all the things that I was focused on, how to go to market, you know, how to take a product, an idea, et cetera. Right. And actually get it to the market and have people buy it and use it. And how do you support them? I mean, it's, it's all those things. Uh, so tech, I ended up falling in love with tech, um, but that happened as a result of being in it, not necessarily because <laughs> I thought I loved it before I joined it. Uh, that's great. And as you were developing your leadership capabilities, what were some of those influences that helped you kind of develop a model for your own personal style? Oh, gosh, it was watching people. <clears throat> you know, I tried to watch leaders that I thought that I admired, right? Ones who could really command a room, command a crowd, um, who could basically get people to do, you know, what needed to be done, mm. were inspirational, um, we're a good leader. I mean, all those things. And I just watched. And then I also watched people who did things that I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> I want to make sure I never do that. Right. It, all that. So really came from observation and yes, some training, you know, IBM, I still credit IBM to this day with a lot of my general management skills because mm -hmm. they actually do, did train back then in terms of on being, on being good managers, but the leadership piece, um, the, how do you actually you know, build the team, set the strategy, get the inspiration, all those things that really came from watching people and frankly, having some good mentors. I'm a big believer in mentors and I've had a bunch of them over the careers, which I'm very fortunate for. I like hearing that about mentors. We, we had a guest before and he was talking about, he likes to constantly have three mentors. He's like one, a generation below him, one, his current generation, one, a generation above him. And I was like, that is such an interesting concept. So that way you're, you're kind of covering everything along the timeline. Mm -hmm. It is. I never really thought about it that way um, in terms of different generations. I have to think about it. I've how, I've, even though I never thought about it that way, I've definitely had different generations. Haven't always had the younger ones, though. Um, I took advantage of people that I was mentoring to mm -hmm. also learn from. <laughs> 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 Um, for sure, for sure. But I, I agree. You know, the good news is I learned early in my career that you could actually have more than one mentor and that mentoring doesn't have to be a formal relationship. So all of that helps shape how I approached the whole mentor mentoring piece. Yeah, that's great. I'm a big believer in mentors. And I, I know that uh, that Nick feels the same way. It's been uh, you know, some of the best relationships uh, in my life have been, you know, those who have been mentors to me. And conversely, you know, those opportunities that have presented themselves to me to become a mentor myself. So, um, so I know that that's a, that's a critical component that, that Nick and I have talked about many times uh, that are key leadership traits that we admire. 
Um, we've also talked a lot about the distinctions between management and leadership. And I heard you touch on that just a moment ago a little bit. Um, so I'd like to I'd like to probe a little deeper on that as well, because I, I know we've got uh, one of the things that we've talked about is uh, leadership requires followership. Um, but, you know, what we tend to hear is it's not because it's demanded. It's because people want the followership, right? Um, when when there's something charismatic that comes along uh, about someone who really exhibits those leadership qualities, you really don't have to ask if someone's going to follow. You find that to be true? Definitely. One of my one of my mentors, um, the late Bill Campbell. You know, Bill used to say, "Your title makes you a manager. Your people make you a leader." Mm-hmm. And that's exactly exactly what he meant. Um, you know, one of the advantages of people making you a leader is you can be a leader at any stage, at any stage of your life, your career, what have you. And once you learn that, you have so much power. Mm-hmm. Um, because I used to call it almost, you know, magnet marketing. It's like you just want people who actually want to be on your team. Hey, if you're doing something, let me know. I'm there, right? It's that kind of that kind of thing. And that is just so powerful when it comes to getting things done and making an impact and all of that. So I've always aspired to be one of those people that people want to work with, right? Want to, uh, want to follow versus having to. I love that. And I think even Simon Sinek says that like leadership is a positive impact you have on somebody else and it's not a title. Um, so I, I like the way you, you delved on that even more. It's, it's having the people who, who want to come with you wherever you're going, whether it's, you know, leading some nonprofit organization or just taking your family on a vacation, the, the opportunities there to, to get your leadership skills in everywhere. Absolutely. You know, it's amazing. Most people do not realize how much power they have. Mm-hmm. And the power comes in through the leadership, through the fact that if you want to do something if you're a good leader, there are a lot of people around you who will want to help you do it, whatever that happens to be, whether it's a job and for thing or it's a volunteer activity and it's, I mean, what have you. But I've found there is so much power um, that exists and people have and don't always realize it. Shelly, what's the response been to your book so far? Actually, knock on wood, it's it's been, it's been very good. Just, yeah, just... Um, <laughs> Was it this week? Just this week or late last week? Anyway, Fortune named it one of the top 10 business books of the year. I was like, yay, that was pretty exciting. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Bloomberg listed as one of the top 50 for 2020. Um, It's up for a couple of awards. Uh, The Outstanding, what is it called? Um, The Outstanding Writing Sin Literature or something like that. The OWL Awards up for. Oh, wow. I'm like, Wow. (laughs) Uh, well, congratulations. But, That's amazing. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. But I'll tell you what the most exciting, though, is when I get a tweet or a Instagram note or a LinkedIn mm-hmm. thing or whatever, an email from somebody that I don't even really know um, who says, I just finished your book. And as a result, I'm now going to do this or it really inspired <laughs> me to do that because that's why I wrote it. Right. So that make that's what really you know, all those other things are nice. But yeah. frankly, I was trying to help have an impact on people to help more people get what they want out of life. And those are the best interactions, right? Because I've gotten it from this podcast. Someone would send me a message on LinkedIn and it's somebody who never interacted on anything I post or anything like that. And you just get this wonderful message and, and you're like, man, that's why I do what I do. It's like, it's not going to make me rich, but it's just like, (laughs) it's, it's just one of those things and you get it and you're like, man, that just makes that one person saying that to you made the whole thing worth it. Absolutely. It, fe- it feeds the soul, right? It mm-hmm. feeds the soul. Because people told me when I was starting to work the, write the book and things, they're like, Michelle, you know, you don't make any money writing a book. And I said, I know. <laughs> Everybody's told me that. I said, I know. I'm not writing this book to make money. I really am writing it to share. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're speaking about books, uh, is, is there a book that's had a big impact on you um, or that you like to gift or anything or a piece of media? It doesn't have to be a book. Okay. Um, so I'll tell you, there's one that I like to gift. Um, it came out late for me, um, but it's called All You Have to Do is Ask. 
Mm. And it's by Wayne Baker. Um, and the reason I liked that one in terms of and to give that one is I'm a big believer that if you don't tell the universe what you need, if you don't tell the universe what you want, then the universe can't help you. And it's been my experience that if you ask in the right way, if you tell people in the right way, people will help you because yeah. they've been helping me all the way through. And I like his book because so many people are afraid to ask. We talked about it earlier because they're afraid of getting a no. And the bottom line is a no. A no can't hurt you. <laughs> right? It really exactly. can't. Don't be afraid of a no. Um, so anyway, so that's why that's why I like that particular that particular title. I love that. And that you like, like you said, if you don't ask the universe, how does it know? The answer is definitely no if you don't ask. So why That's don't you right. ask and get the official no? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can find out why not <laughs> exactly. and do something about it. That's right. And it's, it's back to uh, intentionality, isn't it? If, yeah, uh, if you're really clear is. on your intentions and, you know, you know what questions to ask, you, you may not know what the relationships are. Uh, that are going to be the right ones to ask. And, you and you know, just as you address and swerve, there may be these serendipitous moments that take you in a direction that you didn't anticipate. Right. But again, because you've had that intentionality, these things just tend to manifest somehow, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. And that's why it's, it, that's why I believe that you can create your own luck. Does luck happen? Absolutely. Can you make yourself a little luckier? I think you can. Well, that's like a great that. <laughs> that's a great place to leave it today. I think Shelley Archambault, author of Unapologetically Ambitious. Uh, congratulations on the success so far of the book. Uh, I'm sure you're going to see a lot more uh, success coming your way because uh, it is uh, a, a book of vulnerability, uh, authenticity, and insight. And um, I know. In my experience with it so far, it's been rewarding. I'm sure a lot of other people are going to find it that way as well. Well, thank you very much, Brian and Nick. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thank Delighted you. to have you. Thanks for taking the time with us.